You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. I'll be sharing some bite-sized brain science, thought-provoking questions, and mind-bending ideas about how our brains work, change, learn, and adapt, and how we can use the knowledge emerging from the field of neuroscience to open up new possibilities and make the progress we want in all areas of our lives. Hello everyone and welcome back again. I'm delighted to have you here with me today and I'm going to be talking about something that we take for granted, but we probably shouldn't. What I'm talking about is what other people know, specifically what they know about what we know, what we think or what we feel about something. Now, we often assume that other people know what we know. They can kind of read our minds and see right through us, right? It's often like we feel completely transparent and assume that what we know must be evident to everyone else. So, for example, if we feel like we're flying by the seat of our pants or we don't know enough and we've got a whole deafening imposter syndrome riff going on in our heads, we tend to think it must be oozing out of our pores. And it also sometimes leads us to assume that someone should know something just because we know it. And if you've ever had a conversation with a child who has just realised that you don't know when the Triceratops became extinct, or what the evolved version of an ultra-rare Pokemon is, then you'll already have a fair idea how this phenomenon works. There's a tool called the Johari window, which is kind of interesting. It can be used in various situations, and one colleague mentioned using it as part of 360 reviews for corporate executives. Now, the Johari window is basically a four-box grid, and the boxes contain information about us matched with who it's known by. Now, in a formal or corporate context, that might uh, come with a set of lists of various adjectives that we would use about ourselves or that other people would use about us. But for our context now, I'm just going to describe what the information is. So first of all, there is the information that's known to us, but not known to anyone else. This might include ideas we've had or how we're feeling about something. Then there's information that's known to us and to others. For instance, stories that we've shared with them, information about where we live or what causes we support. Then there's information that's not known to either ourselves or others, something totally beyond our experience or culture, for example. Or in the context of the window, that might be a talent or a personality trait that has not yet been demonstrated by us. And finally, there's something that's known to others, but not known to us. And that's our blind spot. We might not be aware that our noses flare slightly when we disagree with someone or that everyone can tell from our demeanor if we've had an argument at home or that everyone wishes they found it as easy as us to come up with a thoughtful gift. It's an interesting and thought provoking tool, so I'll put a link in the notes to it. So what we know isn't always evident, nor is it universally known. The hive mind may exist, but we haven't been assimilated into the Borg. Our thoughts are not actually networked. Now, we might logically accept that this is true, but it still leads us to miscalculate certain things. And interestingly, I actually find myself assuming that if I found something out in the last, say, the last year or so, then everyone else already knew it or found out around the same time. And this could be a skill or a factoid from a piece of research or an insight into the work of an obscure author. But somehow I still find myself assuming that if I know it, if I go to share that with someone, then I'll only be reiterating what they already know. I guess I sort of think I was probably the last person to find out. And this can really get in our way when we're trying to build a business, especially in the online education space. 
So there are a few myths and truths about this. What, let's play a game with it. What do you think the answers are to these? So the first one, I don't know everything about this subject. Is that true or false? Well, it is pretty much always true for everyone in every situation, I guess. It will always be true. It's especially true this sort of stuff that I personally like to investigate because so much still remains to be discovered about how our brains work. So I have to be pretty comfortable with this idea, with this level of uncertainty. And I have no doubt whatsoever that as time goes on, I'll look back over the episodes of this podcast and shake my head at how much has been discovered, how little I knew. Number two, true or false? I've already said this, so I can't say it again. False. This idea that we have to say something new every time we deliver a message for our business or for our product or for our training or our customers in general. This is one that we get tripped up in so easily. We're still operating in our real life mode with this thinking where we've told our friend or spouse or colleague the same story twice and been gently or maybe not so gently reminded that we've already told them that. The inference being that we're wasting their time. But the number of the people on the internet or in the room that you're speaking to or even on your client list, it's a different ballgame to the number of people in your living room or your office. And we also have to attune our sensitivity to the fact that A, the whole internet wasn't listening to what we were saying. B, the ones who were were probably missing half of it because they were multitasking. And C, it often takes a few repetitions for people to really hear something, whether that's because they were doing something else, whether they weren't ready at the time, or they literally just needed another round to let the information or lesson sink in. So if what you have to say is important, if what you have to say can genuinely be of benefit to someone, and you're not just trying to create content for the sake of it, then say what you have to say and say it as many times as you need to. Saying something once in the digital space is very often the equivalent of whispering it in a dark cave. Hate to break it to you, but no one heard it. I see so many amazing new entrepreneurs feeling very down about their progress. They've been pouring all of their enthusiasm and quite often their money into trying to build a business for some time. And it does feel like no one's listening. I mean, how many times have you delivered the message? Why aren't people responding? But imagine you're an aging rock star and think about all the times you've played exactly the same songs and had people literally screaming for more. We forget that our favorite thinkers and speakers and performers put on exactly the same routines hundreds and hundreds of times because we only hear it once. Another thing that happens here is that while there are many practical steps that need to be taken to ensure that you get in front of the right audiences, it seems like many people are somehow waiting for acknowledgement. They're waiting for people to notice them and they feel hurt and disappointed when the things that they've created aren't getting the response that they feel they should. And it feels like rejection. It feels like nobody wants their contribution. Now, I'm not here to gauge the quality of any given product or contribution, but what I would say is that many of the things I've seen die quiet deaths deserve better outcomes. And it's like we're still stuck in school waiting for the teacher to come around and tell us our work is great and give us a gold star. And that just isn't how it happens. Sorry, guys. That pattern that so many of us were raised with Stay where you are, sit in your place, and then eventually you'll be acknowledged. That's just not how it is anymore. There is no teacher. There is no need to stay in your place. It's time to get up, get out there, and show people how the amazing thing you're doing can help them. We have a lot of habits to break here, a lot of learned behaviors. But 
What superpower do we have that can help with this? Oh my God, I've said it before, so I can't say it again. Ah, tell with it. Neuroplasticity. Yay for neuroplasticity. Our brain's ability to rewire itself. That's how we learn. That's how we change. So all those old habits and patterns, when they are not serving us, we can change them. We can change them. Right, getting back on track with the game, because we're still playing, by the way. Number three, I don't know everything, so I can't be of service until I do. Uh Uh-uh, nope, definitely false. Have I mentioned the senpai concept before? Probably. It comes up a lot. But in case you missed it, see what I'm doing there? (laughs) Telling the same story again because it's important and useful and assuming that you were listening the last time is too much of a risk for me to take right now. Anyway, in our kendo dojo, as in many other martial arts, we have a hierarchical structure. At the head of the dojo sits our sensei and everyone else lines up according to their rank. Sensei is obviously the teacher, but sensei is not the only one who passes on knowledge in the dojo. And it's considered the responsibility of anyone who has someone more junior than them in the group to look for opportunities to help that person learn, to keep them right, if you will. In the early days, this could be making sure they remember their etiquette or hold their sword properly. It doesn't have to be earth shattering stuff, but it means that sensei can focus on more important things. And it also builds relationship within the group. We share our knowledge as an act of service and with humility. This is a really important role and it involves everyone in the teaching process, effectively preparing them gradually for the mantle of sensei that they will eventually take on if they stick with their training long enough. Last one, number four. Willingness to admit that you don't know everything can actually add to your credibility. True or false? Hmm, surprisingly, this one is true. It's maybe a little counterintuitive, but rather than detract from your standing or reputation, having a willingness to say, you know what, that's a really interesting question and it's not really my area, but I can point you in the direction of people who are more informed than me. Taking that sort of position can actually reassure people that you do know what you know and you're not trying to fill gaps with something that you've just made up on the spot. Because realistically, we know that nobody knows everything and our spidey senses do tingle when we see that people are trying to wing it. But admitting that you don't know, that makes me so happy. I'm working with someone who's secure in what they know, happy to admit when they don't. Hearing that makes me think, here's someone who isn't playing a power game with knowledge. They're sharing it. They accept that it's more powerful when we acknowledge that it's a lifelong journey and our various strands of information weave a beautiful tapestry as we collaborate. And another example of this in action is that someone recently told me how much I'd helped her by explaining how naps can benefit productivity and brain function. Now, I'm not an expert in the science of sleep. And no matter how much I learn, what I know about brain science will always be a drop in the ocean. But sharing this little snippet of information with someone had a direct and dramatic impact on her life. So who would I have served by waiting or not giving her that information? No one. Now, If we come at this from a different direction, hopefully you'll see the picture pulling into focus as we do so. The next angle is rejection. It's generally such a painful experience for us that we try to avoid it. We attach so much meaning to times when we feel rejected and have such bad memories or associations with it that the average guy or gal tries to avoid it as much as possible. It's unpleasant, right? It feels like we're being told there's something wrong with us, whether or not we were aware of it. We fear rejection. It's primal. For about 95% of our evolutionary history, we lived in small groups. Being excluded from a group made life much harder, more perilous, and probably a lot shorter, especially if you were at an age where you were unable to properly fend for yourself. 
So for these reasons, we're hardwired to avoid rejection. But even though we're probably less likely to be picked off by a big cat or a pack of hyenas if we experience rejection in our modern lives, our brains give the feelings we experience meaning, both internal and external. And this is not necessarily the meaning that the instance of rejection actually has. Say, for instance, you've got two members of a door-to-door sales team doing opposite sides of the same street. Let's call them Sam and Alex. Both are rejected at the first house, and the second, and the third, all the way down the street. At the ninth house, Sam is feeling like he's having a pretty bad day. He's not feeling as enthusiastic as he was at the first door, that's for sure. And it seems like a strange kind of affirmation of his expectation when the owner of the ninth house also tells him where to go. He has no hope left of closing a sale that day as he hits the 10th house. All the others have rejected me, he thinks. Maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Meanwhile, across the street, at the ninth house, Alex still has a spring in his step. It's almost like he and Sam have drifted into different realities, and in some ways, they have. Sam's reality isn't allowing the earlier rejections to determine his expectations for the 10th house. He realises that there is no connection between what happens at each of the previous doors, and he has as good as, if not better, of a chance of getting a sale on his final call of the day. When asked what rejections one through nine mean, Alex says that they don't mean anything that matters. The reasons for the individual householder's to refuse the purchase could run from they didn't have the money to they've already bought one to they just don't want one. They don't mean anything about Alex himself, so he has no reason to feel rejected. And it's the same for us. Just because one person doesn't want what you're offering doesn't mean the next person will feel the same way. Just because it's not right for Peter doesn't mean it won't be life-changing for Paul. And in any of those scenarios, it doesn't mean anything at all about your intrinsic value. You're not your work, or your product, or your reviews. So when, not if, because you are going to meet rejections if you market a product or service, when you meet rejection, it means nothing about you. But for many of us, we tend to tie our value to our output. If you heard the Secret Curse of Productivity episode, you'll see a thread connecting these two things. Each of us exists as a valid human, regardless of what work we do, or how that is received. It's a fundamental notion and the basis of any equality we hope to experience in the world. We exist as valid humans regardless of what our peers think of us. We have an equal right to existence. If our product or offer is snapped up by the million, that doesn't make us more valid as a person. Similarly, if our offer doesn't do well, that doesn't make us any less valid. If you have a list of five people or 5,000 people or 5 million people, what does it mean? It likely means that people really enjoy your emails and get value from them, or they really want your product. Or it could just be that they can't even be bothered opening the emails and they probably should unsubscribe, but they're just too lazy. In any of these instances, it's not personal. You're not your work. When we can disconnect from the idea that we're only as valuable as our output, then we can start to see that if someone doesn't want what we do, then it doesn't actually mean that we're being personally rejected. But let's shift to another angle. What if we reframe rejection as distillation? Okay, so the people in this audience don't resonate with this offer. What can you deduce from this? Well, in all likelihood, they don't know you, so it's not you that they're rejecting. It's what you've offered them. So you know that saying about when a plant doesn't grow, you don't blame the plant, you change where it's growing? Or if you offer someone a slice of cake and they say no thanks, it's more likely to mean that they're not hungry or they're on a diet 
but it probably doesn't mean that they have any particular objection to accepting cake from you. It's a bit like that. And it's all an experiment. Did I tell you about my magpies? Probably not yet, actually. I'm a big fan of all kinds of corvids. And where I live right now, apart from a pretty nutty seagull, they're the majority of the urban bird life. So here's the deal. I really wanted magpies to start coming by. I think they're so beautiful. Um, The Eurasian magpies that we have here are absolutely stunning birds. They've got um, very distinct black and white markings and iridescent feathers. Not just that, but they are smart as a whip. And the Latin for magpie or the Eurasian magpie is pica pica. I kid you not. Anyway, I used to occasionally put out some stuff on the window for them. And of course, the rest of the time I'd forget. The dish would eventually get emptied, but it would lie empty. And to be fair, it did take them a while to eat the stuff that I'd put out. But then I changed tack. I moved the dish to another place where they could A, see it more easily and B, not feel so confined in approaching it. Then I made a point of checking that it was full every day. And it was full of things that were made by the local bird protection people. So they were really tasty for birds. So all in all, if you're a magpie, this was starting to look pretty attractive. Visibility, availability and pretty darn tasty. I didn't see them at first, but the dish did start getting emptied. They were very careful not to be seen. And then Bert Bird, (laughs) the bravest, started landing on the sill where I could watch him. Now, there are at least three of them visiting regularly and a pretty shady looking seagull, that naughty one that I mentioned. And he has already stolen a dish and dropped it onto my flat roof for some reason. Anyway, so I guess it wasn't personal when the magpies didn't make a habit of coming from my previous offerings in the same way that although they do come now, they're still not doing it for me. They're doing it because it's of benefit to them. The amount of enjoyment I get from their visits is not on their agenda. They don't know how much I've been vision boarding magpie visits. They don't know that I tried previously and failed because, to be honest, the magpie lifespan ain't that great and they're maybe not even the same magpies. See how it goes? There is no correlation between my previous magpie rejection and my current success. One does not determine the other. But if we're up for it, we can see rejection as a gift. It tells us that we're not nailing it in terms of giving our magpies what they want, need or enjoy. So what are we going to do? Assume that there are no other options or start noticing stuff and figuring out how to improve it. I guess at the end of the day, the question comes down to whether or not we're clear enough on what we want, what it's worth to us and more importantly, how much we're worth to ourselves in terms of the effort that we're willing to put in to make this thing that we want happen. So I'm going to wrap up there, but remind me to tell you another story about the seagull sometime. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a crazy bird. So I hope you enjoyed this and I hope it's given you some food for thought and I hope we'll see you next time. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links. Hey, before you go, I want to take a moment to say thanks for tuning into this episode of the Ambition Incubator podcast and just check to make sure you know that you can join me each week for a deep dive, dynamic, collaborative reading of some business classics. You'll find all the information you need when you register for free at ambitionincubator.com forward slash BBC. I'll see you there.